on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Tyler McNabb about Reformed epistemology and classical theism. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is Reformed epistemology? Is it Reformed in a theological sense or in some other sense? How plausible is Reformed epistemology outside of our Western context? What is classical theism? How does it compare to other Eastern ways of thinking, such as Buddhist thought? Can a Buddhist be a classical theist in any sense? Why should normal people even care about any of this stuff? And what about aliens? What does that mean for our Christian faith? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcasts on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm joined by our book review editor at the London Lyceum, Hunter Heinzman, today, who's a pastor in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. They don't even have a target, so that's how you know it's the middle of nowhere, or at least an undesirable place, according to the most American populations that live in cities, like me. Uh, So... Where a podcast is devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we try to talk about serious thinking and explain that to people, we, we are always getting new listeners, so I always try to give a little bit of an explanation of what that looks like. So what we've tried to cash it out as is a couple of virtues that we want to pursue and encourage and cultivate, things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So all of those have their own particular meanings, but they kind of go together uh, with this just idea that we want to be open-minded, Uh, reasonable people that think really hard about stuff. Uh, We want to be open and honest about where we come from and our commitments doctrinally, but we don't want to be hostile to other people just because they think differently. We want to understand what they think and why they think it. And then we can have a reasonable discussion and have fun and discuss it and say, you know what? I totally disagree with you here. I think you're absolutely wrong. And yet we can still be friends and have fun and discuss it. So that's the basic idea behind the podcast and all that we do is just trying to create an atmosphere that is conducive to friendship among differing parties and is also conducive to encouraging all sorts of people. So whether you're a Baptist or not listening to this episode, we have a lot of people across the spectrum. I would say most of you guys are Protestants, but we've got a Roman Catholic with us today. Uh, Unfortunately, he swam the Tiber, but maybe we'll talk about that. I don't know. Uh, We have Tyler McNabb, who I think is a dynamite uh, scholar. So he's written like an incredible amount. It puts me to shame. Uh, every time I look at a CV, it makes me sad in my, in my heart because I know that I'm not doing all the stuff that I could do because he's awesome. So Tyler, give me a little bit of background about you, who you are, what you do now, uh, why you got interested in the particular topic. So we're going to talk epistemology, especially reformed epistemology and some classical theism sort of stuff. Like what, what started the interest in those sort of things? Yeah. Oh, great. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, as you as you mentioned, uh, I, I was formerly Protestant and of the Reformed tradition as well. In fact, um, I have here, uh, your, your audience won't be able to see this since it's just recording, but y'all will be able to see this. Um, here is a book from, it's Spurgeon's Sermons from a long time ago, and you open it up, right? And you've got Susanna Spurgeon, um, signing this and uh, writing a little note in here, and so you know, here's here's more evidence of my reform days. You know, still still can admire Spurgeon, a holy and, icon uh, for us Baptists. That's right. That's right. 
Um, yeah, so uh, I became kind of sincere about having a Christian faith my senior year of high school. I went through like a short agnostic stage and uh, was about to become an atheist, ended up you know, doing what any good millennial would do and Googled uh, evidence for God's existence and uh, uh, ended up finding passages in the Old Testament. No, actually, it wasn't like philosophical arguments that got me. It was like Isaiah 53 and uh, ended up having a strong religious experience the next day uh, on the way to, to class. And uh, from then on out, I was, you know, interested in reading scripture and commentaries. And I started street evangelizing a couple months after that and uh, realized quickly that, you know, apologetics is something that I really want to get into. Um, uh, ended up, long story short, ended up having a, well, ended up getting into like a lot of kind of reformed views of apologetics, like presuppositionalism. And so Greg Bonson was my boy, you know, uh, reading and listening to everything I could from him and, um, ended up, uh, having like a year of where I was just constantly plagued with doubts for some reason. Uh, later on, I got diagnosed with OCD, so it could have possibly, uh, that could have played a role as well, but, um, ended up, uh, finally resolving a lot of my issues when I came across a book in graduate school called Warranted Christian Belief by a little known philosopher named Alvin Plantiga. And, uh, reading that was kind of like, you know, Plantiga argues, and we'll talk about this, you know, later today. Uh, that go just with what seems to you to be the case. Go with your intuitions, right? It, it's it's you don't always have to have arguments in order for your beliefs to 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 be justified or rational, warranted, and that was just like really existentially speaking freeing. Um, and uh, then I just got into more kind of the standard philosophy of religion as I was in graduate school and. Um, so on and so forth. So anyway, that's uh, now I'm associate professor of philosophy at St. Francis University. Uh, before I've been um, at University of St. Joseph in China or University of Macau in China um, and uh, Houston Baptist or now Houston Christian University. Uh, so I primarily specialize in religious epistemology, but also publish a bit uh, in some political philosophy and classical theism stuff. Very cool. One thing I want to start with is just explaining to me when we talk about the term reformed epistemology, what exactly that means. How does that differ from the various approaches you mentioned? So you mentioned Greg Bonson, presuppositionalism, like where does this map onto that at all? Or is mm -hmm. this completely different? Is the reform supposed to mean Calvinistic? Those sort of things. Right. So reformed epistemology uh, is actually a quite an ecumenical thesis. So I've got a recent paper uh, in Philosophy Compass uh, kind of exploring Catholic uh, epistemology of faith in showing that actually it's it's got uh, a whole lot in common with the Reformed understanding as well. Uh, so Reformed epistemology is not uh, some sort of word that entails, you know, views about superlapsarianism <laughs> or, uh, uh, you know, the... the uh, um, Protestant views of justification or whatnot. Um, reformed is there. It's just kind of like a, a, a little word there to um, echo John Calvin in his Institutes book one, where he talks about a sense of divinity, a sensus divinitatis. 
And Plantinga calls it reformed because he's he's uh, reformed epistemology because he's largely inspired by John Calvin, though Aquinas to some degree as well, but primarily John Calvin. He sees this idea of having a faculty or an innate awareness of God just through kind of our noetic structure. And so uh, that's why it's called reformed epistemology. Uh, later on, Plantinga kind of, uh, as I understand it, kind of regrets calling it reformed epistemology just because, for example, in my circles, Catholic circles, people are like, what, you can't read Plantinga? You, you can't endorse reformed epistemology. That's like for Protestants. And, uh, you know, and, and it's like, no, 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 no. All reformed epistemology is the thesis that religious belief can be justified or warranted, rational, whatever word you want to use, uh, apart from argument. Right. It's not to say there aren't good arguments. I think there are really good arguments for God's existence. But uh, the idea is that they're not necessary for your belief to be rational. Um, so think about like animals and infants. Right. Seems like they know stuff. Right. Um, seems like dog knows when food's in the bowl. Right. Or uh, cognitive science seems to point to the idea that um, infants have a belief in object permanence, where whenever an object goes out of the way, right, the object still exists. Right. So it seems like there's this thing called animal knowledge, as Ernest Sosa calls it. Um, but yeah, I mean, do dogs and and infants, uh, do they have like arguments for their beliefs? Or are they like subconsciously doing Bayesian probability calculus? You know? No, no, no. Uh, I think these are just kind of natural um, responses um, based off of, you know, intuitions, instinct, that sort of thing. And so I think belief in God uh, can be similar where... Um, you know, if God exists and he's created us in a certain way as to make us uh, inclined to to uh, believe in him, then assuming that our cognitive faculties are functioning properly and aimed at truth, then we can know that he exists uh, apart from argument. So I usually like to illustrate this with an example of my daughter. My daughter's name is Eden. Right? Imagine Eden is in a garden <laughs> and you know, Eden picks up a flower, right? And she looks at all of its delicacies, all the intricacies of the flower, right? If you've never done this before, it's actually a thrilling experience. If you just have time, pick up a flower and like look at all the texture. And I've, I before have looked at this and I've just been overwhelmed with um, uh, belief that it's designed, right? So imagine you just pick up a flower, Eden picks up the flower and she just finds herself believing that God created this, right? If that belief was the result of properly functioning faculties, right? Her mental processes were all working rightly, named it truth. Then her belief that God created the flower would be rational, right? Arguments not required. So uh, we can also later on talk about how maybe Christian belief specifically can be justified or warranted apart from argument. But for now, hopefully this is kind of broadening uh, one's understanding of reformed epistemology to where it's not uh, soteriological implications, but rather a, a minimal thesis about how we can have positive uh, epistemic status apart from argument. When I think about this sort of stuff, like what's, for somebody who's new to the conversation, maybe the question is like, what's the limit to say, no, you can't be justified in it just because you have property fu properly functioning faculties doesn't necessarily entail that you have some sort of justified true belief or something like that. Or you can be justified in believing whatever it may be like, what's the extra limit on there? What's the other conditions that would say, yes, this counts right. as something that you can you can believe? So formally put, and then I can try to break it down a little bit more in, um, in uh, more layman's terms. But formally, the idea for Planiga is that a belief is 
uh, warranted if and only if it's produced from properly functioning cognitive faculties. The cognitive faculties have a design plan that's aimed at truth. There's a high statistical probability that the belief being produced under these conditions will be true and the faculties are in the environment for which they were designed, right? And of course, some of your audience now might be thinking, what? They've never read Planica. Um, so think about our minds as like uh, uh, computers. You don't have to completely buy computational theory of mind for this. You could think that our minds do computing, but they're more than just computers, right? You could think that. That's fine. Or you can just think it's a helpful analogy, right? Computers have design plans. Right. If all of a sudden I was talking to you and then this computer just shut off, right? Blue or green screen popped up, right? We would say my computer is not functioning properly, right? However, if I opened up um, the, the, the browser and went into my Gmail, right? And it, it went into my Gmail, then we'd say it's, it's working properly. So the same thing is that our minds have a design plan. And so the idea is that our faculties need to be working in accordance with that design plan. And the design plan needs to be aimed at truth. It's not enough just to have properly functioning faculties. We can imagine a scenario where, you know, someone's faculties are aimed at producing belief and wish fulfillment, right? Uh, anything that they wish, they believe is going to come true, right? So um, here you, you, you wish that you had a million dollars today. <laughs> and so you believe that someone's going to give you a million dollars today. What if by chance someone actually did come into your life and gave you a million dollars today, completely not, not connected, right? Would you really have a warrant? Did you really know you were going to have a million dollars that day? No, right? So faculties need to be aimed at truth. And it, it's not enough just to be aimed at truth, but your design plan needs to be a good one uh, where you, you get to truth a lot more than not. Uh, like a good, reliable car gets you from place to place more than not. Uh, you know, you might think of an incompetent deity who creates individuals he aims their faculties at truth. He wants them to believe true things, but it's not a really reliable system, and they, they end up only believing one true thing every every once in a while, right? And then for those who know Gittier, you mentioned Justified True Belief. Uh, for those who know Gittier issues, like think barn facade cases, crazy environment cases, right? It needs to be sort of in a normal environment. Um, so anyway, that's proper functionalism. This is Plantinga's way, one of his ways of arguing for reformed epistemology. This is not the only theory, though. This is a important, um, a lot of people um, miss this. This is not the only theory uh, that's consistent with reformed epistemology. In fact, in my religious epistemology elements volume, I try to make it very clear that in fact, most contemporary epistemic theories are consistent with reformed epistemology. Even uh, like kind of softer internalist theories like phenomenal conservatism, where it says basically, if it seems to you to be the case <laughs> that P and you don't have any reasons to think not P, right? You don't have any defeaters for, for thinking P, then you're justified. You at least have some prima facie justification for thinking that P, right? Um, reliabilism, old-fashioned reliabilism is consistent with this, right? Virtue reliabilism is consistent with this. And so you have lots of different epistemic theories where you can make sense of how belief in God could be properly basic or rational apart from argument. But planning a specific version, this proper functionalism that I've uh, tried to uh, loosely articulate, that's that's kind of his main game. Okay. So I am a little curious. We plan to talk a little bit about classical theism towards the end of this interview, but I'm wondering do you, how much of the divine attributes mm. do you think would be considered properly basic belief in some oh. sense. Can we add in things like 
divine simplicity or immutability or yeah. timelessness or those sort of attributes and say, I am justified without rational argument or demonstration to believe in these things. Right. Yeah. So now might be a good time to uh, briefly talk about how specifically not just kind of general theistic belief can be warranted, but like robust Christian belief, right? And what Plantinga means by Christian belief, like think the Nicene Creed, right? <laughs> um, God exists, right? Uh, Trinity, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God, the Son becomes man, dies on the cross for our sins, right? God, the Father raises uh, Jesus, the God, the Son from the dead by the Spirit, and uh, doing so, making the world right, right? Offering forgiveness of sins, right? Um, right. So ha this even plenty of things can be warranted or rational apart from argument. One way of understanding this is by way of testimony, okay? So if you read Warrant Proper Function, which is uh, about seven years before Warranted Christian Belief comes out, uh, Plantinga talks about how testimonial beliefs are, are warranted. So if you've ever noticed, I don't know if you all have children. I've got five of them. <laughs> A stereotypical Catholic family, right? Um, I've got five kiddos. And uh, you don't have to tell your kids not to like, like... Like, you don't have to prove to your kids uh, that what you're saying is true. They just kind of automatically believe you. In fact, if they, like, go on YouTube, they'll be like, Daddy, guess what? This really cool thing exists. And I'm like, actually, bud, no, it doesn't. <laughs> right? They're just kind of, like, naturally prone to accept what we say. Right? What others say. We're, we are designed, so to speak, to accept the testimony of others. Right? If I said that uh, Austin is the capital of Texas, um, Usually my children wouldn't be like, oh, I don't know, dad, the past was reliable about other things. Probably here he's reliable too, right? No, it's just kind of an immediate belief like, yep, okay, Austin's the capital of Texas, right? So we're, we are designed to accept testimony, right? And the idea here is that um, let's say that Christianity is true. Notice I'm giving a conditional statement, right? Let's imagine, let's say uh, Christianity is true. Like if Christianity is true, um, this is one way you can differentiate with presuppositionalism, which is just going to assume Christianity is true, right? So I'm making a conditional statement. Anyway, um, if Christianity is true and uh, God exists in the way that we say that he does, in the way the creeds say that he does, and uh, he's oh, the, whole, his, his, the, the Holy Spirit, he has written scripture through various human authors, and... Uh, I just find myself inclined to accept the Holy Spirit's testimony, his testimony, as well as the human author's testimony. There's like multiple testifiers in this situation. And I just find myself believing that what it says is true, right? Uh, namely that in Christ, God is, you know, reconciling the cosmos, right? Maybe I read Colossians or something. Um, as long as my belief, right, is the product of accepting this testimony is you know, if my faculties are functioning properly and that sort of thing aimed at truth, then my belief would be warranted. Notice here, uh, you, this can also be said, like, if, imagine if you think that the church um, has warranted belief about um, God's immutability or divine simplicity, and the church testifies to you of this, and you just find yourself accepting the testimony of the church, right? And that's the result of your faculties functioning properly and so on. Well, then, then these beliefs can also be rational or warranted apart from argumentation. So hopefully that kind of gives you a little bit of a framework to work with. Yeah, no, it definitely does. 
Hunter, you look like you have a question. Yeah, I was just, I was just thinking, you know, um, these ideas of rational faculties properly, properly functioning, being oriented to uh, what is true. It seems like this idea of being oriented is, is pretty important. And you've been kind of focusing in on just truth uh, is like one of the transcendentals. But is it is it broader than that? Is it truth, goodness, and beauty plays into this idea? Or is it just um, – I don't know if my, my question is making sense, but – are there other are there other orientations as well that play into reformed epistemology? Right. So you might think that truth, goodness, and beauty is actually you know God Himself or something like that, and you and so in that sense, our faculties are oriented toward uh, truth, good, and beauty because they're one and the same. Right. These are all just shorthand descriptions for um, for for God that He is. Um, but yeah, I mean, our faculties might have other. Uh, might have like kind of multiple sets of design plans, might have multiple different functions. Um, uh, however, the idea is that uh, if the belief in question is to have positive epistemic status, then at least one of the functions of the relevant faculties <laughs> that are involved in producing your belief need to be aimed at truth. How does reformed epistemology in any sense differ from something like, you, you mentioned already one difference between it and presuppositionalism, but say something like Scott Oliphant's covenantal epistemology. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking for these particular examples, just given the context of our listeners, they're probably more familiar with things like Oliphant and Bonson and others. So comparing and contrasting there, I think is pretty helpful. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I still have love for kind of Bonson's transcendental, Van Til's transcendental argument. In fact, if you see in my work, you'll, you'll see a little bit of that going on, um, especially in my elements volume where um, I give a preconditions argument <laughs> uh, for knowledge. Uh, and I kind of tie in Plantinga with with kind of a more Van Tilian thought there. Um, but uh, I think dialectically, actually, the... Uh, where the kind of the different approaches are. So reformed epistemologists are going to want to say, all right, here's a theory of, of justification or rationality, right? Now we can, we can, we can argue on this, from this theory that, um, that uh, this theory would, it would uh, permit belief in God to be basic, right? You might, you might think something like that. Um, at the same time, you might be what I am, which is what's called an epistemic particularist, where a particularist is going to want to say, like, you should actually just start off with what, what seems obvious to you and then judge epistemic theories based on if that theory is consistent with you knowing what seems obvious. Right. So, for example, um, a Methodist, I don't mean a, a Christian Methodist, <laughs> um, uh, an epistemic Methodist is going to say the opposite, right? They're going to say, no, we need, um, we need uh, to come up with a good epistemic theory and then judge what we know based off of that epistemic theory, right? So I can see a reformed epistemologist, e e either one, right? You, can, you might think that, uh, well, hey, um, belief that uh, God exists is consistent with these epistemic theories that we're already committed to, uh, and you go that route. Or you might be, I think, a particularist more in line with, I think, what a presuppositionalist would want to do and say, no, it's obvious we know God exists, right? And we should judge theories that don't allow us to know that God exists. <laughs> theories that, that, that conclude we don't know, they're bad theories, 
right? So I think there, there's there's a, a, something in common there with reformed epistemology and presuppositionalism is that I think both are rooted ultimately in a particularism or a Reedian common sense view of uh, being confident in our faculties and what we know. Uh, generally, as I said earlier, one of the differences is um, circularity. Uh, I'm not opposed to uh, circular arguments. So Michael Bergman argues, for example, that circularity is only uh, bad, right? If what's in question is um, up for debate. So for example, circularity, like if you're, if you're uh, being accused of a crime in court and you're like, what's your evidence that you didn't do it? And you're like, well, I'm an honest person and I'm telling you I didn't do it, right? You might think like, okay, well, you know, I'm not sure if I should believe you or not. That's not going to really help me, right? Your testimony is not going to really help me because that's what's on trial right now. Are you really an honest person? Um, however, there might be other cases where circularity is benign, what Bergman calls benign. And, my, and Andrew Moon does a good job talking about this as well, uh, where, um, uh, you know, if someone says, for example, uh, how do you know other people exist, <laughs> other minds exist, right? You might give like a, a circular argument. How do you know there's an external world? Well, here's my hands. Right? Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, you might end up appealing to something circular there ultimately when you, if you keep getting repeated. Well, how do you know your hands are there, right? Um, and so that's okay, though. If you feel certain about what's in question, then the circularity is, is, is um, more permissible. I want to avoid that route, dialectically speaking, at least for as long as I can. I think it's um, better as an apologetic and as a theory to be taken more seriously with... Uh, other academics who don't have uh, a nice disposition toward theism to just say, well, hey, you know, um, uh, look at all these epistemic theories. They're all consistent with this idea that if God exists, we could have knowledge that he exists apart from argument, you know. And so I guess kind of uh, approaching this uh, in a non-circular way, um, even if ultimately... Right, I'm grounded in um, uh, circularity, or I'm grounded in um, kind of a strong particularism. But sort of just at least as an apologetic kind of offering that, um, and, and it's, it's much easier, right? You can you can accept these conditionals, right? If God exists, then we can know He exists apart from argument, right? That's an that's an easier conditional to accept. Then saying, well, you know God exists. You're just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Haven't you read Romans 121? Here, now I'm going to show you how you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, right? It's, it's, a, it's a lot easier to bite, so to speak. Uh, I've got atheist philosopher friends who consider themselves reformed epistemologists because they agree with the conditional that if God exists, we can know he exists, right? You probably won't find many atheist presuppositionalists. <laughs> Um, so I, I take it that, that it's, it's, it's not so much substance, substantively where my disagreement lies as much as it is in its kind of dialectical approach to those who don't already share my views. So, so speaking of that, you know, those that don't share your views and this idea of beginning with that, what seems obvious to you, how, how does um, or is reformed epistemology plausible outside of our Western context? I know many are today are thinking that 
truth is culturally conditioned and and how does this work across cultures? Yeah, so as a particularist, I'm just like, no. <laughs> you obviously know that I exist, that you exist, that two plus two is four. Whenever my students in class are like, maybe we we don't know we're in the matrix or maybe, you know, maybe this is all a simulation. I'm like, okay, so you don't know your mom and dad exist, you know? You don't know your boyfriend or girlfriend exists, uh, that they love you, got it. Have you told them this yet? <laughs> you know? Um, and, and, and so like my particularist in me is just like, no, come on, this is, this is common sense. But um, in reference to kind of just reformed epistemology, uh, I think that there's a longstanding tradition within the uh, Eastern Christian tradition and the Western Christian tradition and supporting this, this sort of thesis of reformed epistemology from very early on. But if you're talking about non-Western uh, sort of traditions, if you want to include Christianity for better, for worse, as a Western Abrahamic tradition or whatnot, um, there are actually like a Tom, uh, there's this book called Knowing Beyond Knowledge where um, the author takes a couple of different uh, uh, traditions within Hinduism and basically utilizes Austin and Plenig's work and say, yeah, that's what they're saying. These traditions actually are endorsing over for, uh, proper functionalism, right? So uh, Nevada Vedanta Hinduism, where Shankara thinks that all reality is ultimately impersonal, right? All is the impersonal God, right? This propertyless, qualityless Brahman. Uh, well, in order to reach this right realization, your faculties have to be functioning properly. Um, you need to be like reading the Vedas and the gurus, uh, following the gurus. And like these all have designs or functions, the gurus, the Vedas, etc. And these all need to be like working in the right sort of way that they're intended in order to really get your mind to the right realization, right? That all is the impersonal Brahman. Um, uh, at least that's, that's one way to characterize the Veda Vedanta Hinduism. Not, not the only way, but that's, that is kind of like a standard way to characterize it. Um, you also see, I think a little bit of this as well in Buddhist traditions. Um, in my book with Eric Baldwin, we tackle on like to what extent maybe can Confucians or Taoists, uh, be proper functionalists. Um, I know there is one paper by uh, a guy named David Tien who argues that, uh, Neo-Confucianism also endorses a, a proper functionalism. So it, it's not something that's actually just a theory that Christians endorse, right? It's a theory that lots of religious traditions uh, have air, area for, room for endorsing. And uh, some of the most well-known defenders of proper functionalism are atheists like Peter Graham, right? So uh, yeah, anyway, hopefully that's that's helpful. Yeah. I mean, that helps me transition a little bit into thinking about these other non-Western religions and how they would compare to something like classical theism. So maybe just a little bit, what is, what are we talking about when we say classical theism and right. how does it contrast to something like, let's just pick Buddhism to begin yeah. with, yeah, yeah. Buddhist thought. Um, and maybe before we do that, like what what resources are there that you would suggest to say, if you want to understand right. Buddhism or other non-Western thought, go here as a starter kit because I think I've become to begun to encounter more and more of non-Western thought. Yeah. And I think a lot of our listeners probably have too, and they'd like to have a handy resource to just kind of like, like get the comprehensive overview of right. what it is that's going on there. Yeah. So uh, Victoria Harrison's um, Eastern philosophy is part of the basics series with Rutledge. Um, that's a great book. That was actually one of my first kind of comparative philosophy books. Um, she goes through uh, Hindu traditions and Buddhist traditions and Confucian Taoist traditions in that that volume, just kind of giving you a nice primer on the uh, Eastern philosophy. 
uh, particularly for Buddhism. Um, she has a volume as well in the Elements series on Buddhist uh, philosophy that's helpful. But um, uh, also uh, Garfield's uh, Engaging Buddhism is probably like the standard text right now, I think. When it comes to uh, the analytic tradition, understanding Buddhism, that's probably um, Jay Garfield's book, Engaging Buddhism. He also has a nice commentary uh, from Nagarjuna, uh, his MMK, that uh, I also recommend. But that should this should be enough, to, I think, to, to get one um, situated. Cool. So then when we think about classical theism compared to Buddhism in particular, right? is it compatible in any sense? Are there like shared intuitions? From what the little I know of Buddhism, it seems very different yeah. <laughs> compared to something like classical theism. Yeah. So traditionally, even uh, traditionally, it's been understood that Buddhism is basically an atheistic tradition. Right? That's kind of the standard view. However, there have been like random cases where an individual wants to identify as a Christian Buddhist, right? Wants to kind of synchronize the two. But uh, to my knowledge, at least, there hasn't been a whole lot done actually trying to do that synthesis. <laughs> so you might think that, for example, it's just prima facie obvious. They're not consistent. So the heart of Buddhism is the endorsement of a thesis called the impermanence thesis, where um, think um, any subtle change actually entails um, a significant change, right? Where the thing is no longer that thing. So any type of subtle change, right? So things are constantly then changing, right? Because everything is constantly subtly changing, right? What's the, something uh, today is not the same thing as it was yesterday. It's not the same as it will be tomorrow, right? Things are, uh, yeah, it's like a David Burton quote. Um, you also have this thesis of interdependence where everything is ultimately dependent on another, right? Uh, dependent or, uh, origination is also times uh, at times what it's referred to. And so... Uh, ultimately, if everything is dependent on something else, right, and everything is constantly changing, right, then maybe you think an ultimate reality is ultimately empty of kind of independent substances that are permanent. Right? And so you might think, well, that's obviously inconsistent with God, <laughs> who is immutable and uh, not dependent on anything. <laughs> Um, so you might think that, you know, uh, Buddhism is inconsistent with classical theism. So by classical theism, I mean, uh, you know, the omni properties plus uh, divine simplicity. Uh, God's not made up of parts, right? Um, uh, and uh, strong immutability, where it's not just like, oh, God doesn't change in his character. But no, like God you know, is wholly unchangeable, right? Um, and impassable. Right, nothing can cause God, something in God. Nothing can affect God. Uh, nothing can. Uh, oftentimes, impassibility is also referred to making God suffer. Right, God can't suffer, obviously, if He's immutable and so forth. Um, so, anyway, uh, that's what I mean by classical theism. So, how how are these two things consistent? Well, in the book, uh, classical theism, Buddhism, Eric and I, um, we take seriously the kind of claim that you'll hear from uh, Neoplatonists. And uh, pseudo-Dionysius, people like David Hart or Father Brian Davis, looks like Davies for those who uh, know who I'm talking about, where God is not a thing, or as, the, as, as Hart will say, God is no thing, right? As To be provocative, right? Uh, God is nothing, right? 
And so, I mean, if you, if you really take that, right, the idea that God's not an entity, he's not a thing. And then you look at how interdependence and impermanence are often glossed in the literature, where these are applied to things, to entities, to objects, to phenomena, right? These are all words that are constantly used in the analytic Buddhist tradition. And I can, as, as, as a classical theist, I can be like, yeah, that's right. Every, uh, all things are dependent on other things, right? Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I don't hold the impermanence view, but maybe if you like bought into Jonathan Edwards' views, right? Where Jonathan Edwards think there's no permanent identity intrinsic to the entity, but it's rather God making a collection of um, uh, related causal things and kind of putting his stamp of identity on it, right? In an extrinsic way rather than an intrinsic way. So, I mean, you might think like Jonathan Edwards is a Buddhist in some sense because he believes in impermanence. And uh, uh, inter, uh, interdependence, at least if impermanence is understood primarily as there's no kind of intrinsic identity that's um, secured over time. Uh, and so I, I tease my reform brothers that hey, oh, Jonathan Edwards, he's just a he's just a Christian Buddhist. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I, I can I can then endorse that. Right. Um, uh, God's not a thing, and these theses are applying to things, and then there we go. It doesn't apply to God, and we can still make sense of this. And I use uh, Jonathan Edwards' kind of work, actually, about identity to talk about how we could still have some sort of identity in an extrinsic way, maybe, on this kind of Buddhism, classical theist uh, synthesis. Um, right. So anyway, that's that's the rough idea. We also go, well, what if that's not what they're meaning? Um, what if there's really, they mean like being simplicator, right? Um, uh, and, uh, we have different responses to this as well, but, um, yeah. yeah. So do you think that the objections that Buddhists or other non-Western traditions typically have toward our concept of God, do those map on to similar objections that we're seeing in our own mm-hmm. Western context from say neoclassical theists, objections to various Right. traditional doctrines yes yeah no i mean uh what well, you you do have like this idea of like how can um it, the causes have to resemble the effect uh the effects that we're seeing are changing constantly and interdependent so that must mean god's interdependent and changing right how can that be right you see like arguments like this you see the problem of evil is a huge problem in the literature in fact that might be like the biggest issue in the buddhist literature um you see issues with um, uh, God actually not being omniscient. Like there's there's different um, passages that you can read where uh, it's like, oh yeah, we're looking everywhere to, to you know God's looking everywhere. You can't find it, or you know no one knows, right? Like kind of making God seem like really anthropomorphic. Um, and actually, like honestly, there there's there's in a sense some objections that you might think would affect classical theism, but. There are some objections in the way that God is kind of talked about and made fun of in the Buddhist literature. It's, it's, it's very much like God is a thing still. And so there's like some sense which I, I do wonder, and I say this in the book, um, how much actually uh, the classical theists can, can actually endorse some of the Buddhist critiques about these things, um, given their, their, how they conceive of God. Um, but yeah, anyway, that, that should give you a little bit of a background. Cool. One random question that came to me, and I want to ask it before I forget. I feel like you've co-authored a 
zillion different things. Yeah. Like what is, what is the method to your madness to co-authoring stuff? Yes. Uh, well, it's just to get things done quicker, right? And so if you, especially like if you know of, of an area that you've kind of mastered, you know, so to speak, um, and you know someone else who's mastered a different area, and you're like, wait a minute, if we put these two things, you know, together, uh, we can write this up real quick. And uh, I'll write this part, and you read that, write that part, and then we can further edit what we what, what each of us have written and add to it, and then boom, you got a paper, right? Throw it up somewhere, and it takes you half the time, and then you, you go on to your next paper. Um, anyway, so that that that's that's what uh, uh, that's the issue. That's mo- mostly it. Um, or if you're just like both of us know the area just as much, um, you know, I'll write this part of it, you write that part of it. Um, you, you you go master this for a couple of weeks. I'll go master this, and then you know we'll we'll come together. Uh, and then it, sometimes you just start publishing a lot with someone, and good chemistry, and things are going well, and you're just like, let's just keep it up. Um, so anyway, I don't have trouble usually co-authoring with people. Um, I think it's a it's a good idea uh, if you want to get more of your ideas out there. That's awesome. Now, one last thing I do want to ask is what's your elevator pitch for why particularly your work on epistemology is relevant for the church? Mm. So if you have a pastor or a clergy member of some sort saying like, why should I devote any time thinking about internalism, externalism, reformed right. epistemology, all that kind of stuff? Like what, what's what's the payoff for them that you would say, no, this is actually really useful? Yeah, well, so even talking about my own kind of background earlier, where I went, uh, I ended up going through, like I said, an existential crisis of doubts, where I bought into an epistemology that was like, you know what, you have to have arguments, you have to show it's impossible uh, to, you know, be wrong about this, right? I bought into some some claims that uh, I now reject that I think are unhelpful. Uh, but you don't even have to go that far. You can just think that like, oh, yeah, you might have people and doing apologetics interested in arguments for God's existence. And they look at the literature and they're like, you know what? Um, this is over my head, right? Most people don't have the ability to do graduate degrees in philosophy and theology, right? And then I just think this is this is over my ability. There's some really smart people on both sides. You know, I, I guess maybe I just need to be agnostic on this or um, uh there are some people I've noticed this that they're sort of a certain personality where it's like a personality prone to doubt everything, uh, especially if it's you know prone to doubt what they believe, uh, or it, uh, you know some atheists can come along even if they give bad arguments, but they kind of seemed impressive or something you know and it's just kind of like oh my gosh maybe they're right and they can't even focus on why they're right but they're just like in doubts, <laughs> you know they're just fuming in doubts. And so I think understanding knowledge and understanding that knowledge doesn't always require arguments and uh, understanding that if God existed, uh, then we can know that he exists without argument can actually be quite helpful to not only yourself as a pastor when you're shifting through all these arguments, um, but also to your the, the lady in which you are um, shepherding who will uh, inevitably have doubts and and questions about uh, what requires um, them to to be rational in their faith. So anyway, I think I think 
uh, you should pick up my uh, religious epistemology volumes on, uh, I think it'll help you and do that. That's my elevator pitch. <laughs> awesome. That, that's super helpful. So what I'll do is if you're listening, you'll already know that you'll hit see the resources there. There'll be links. Click the links. Go check it out. Buy the books or find it at your library or tell your library to buy the books and yeah. have them available for you. However you need to do it, get access to them that way. But I'll have the links there for you so you can just click them and find them. So Tyler, I appreciate you coming on, hanging out with us, talking to us about all these things. Uh, I encourage people to check out your work. I mean, like I mentioned, he's got a ton of co-authored papers and all sorts of things. So doing all sorts of unique, cool, interesting stuff, which reminds me, you have a paper on like aliens and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So like, give me the 30 second explanation of what that was, because maybe we should have spent time talking about that. <laughs> yeah. So Chad McIntosh and I, uh, he's a philosopher. Um, uh, he, we um, both kind of like, I, problem of evil has never really affected me, to be honest, uh, or divine hiddenness really. Uh, especially like as a philosopher, I've just, I've never, uh, and then the whole contradiction of different attributes. I mean, those have never really messed with me, but there was a time when thinking about aliens and their existence was like, wow, if aliens did appear, like probably still be a theist, but would I still be a Christian? And I started kind of wondering, yes, I I think I would. Um, but why is there some sort of doubt that, that, um, comes with thinking about ETI and, uh, Christianity? And so we wrote a paper basically just trying to express all the possible reasons for why one might have doubt. But then we sort of go through and show um, uh, why all those uh, reasons would be like pr pretty bad reasons to have doubt in Christianity if aliens existed. Uh, go everything from um, would aliens need um, the atonement, right? Would aliens have like original sin? Um with like Jesus, you know, Thomas Paine, the uh, you know, early American, uh, uh, thought like maybe Jesus would have to like just go from different universe to different universe, right? Different planet to different planet, like taking on different forms, right? I mean, is that what has to happen, right? Um, is there just like a narrative conflict or is the problem of evil worse than what we originally thought? Like, and we just kind of go through all these different issues and argue that they're all bad objections to Christianity. So you should definitely... Uh, if you hear that uh, aliens exist, your immediate thought should be like, do they have an incarnation story, or like, should we go baptize them? Like, what, what, what's going on here? You know. So, uh, ho hopefully, um, readers can appreciate that. That's awesome. Yeah, I, it's only in philosophy can you ask these questions and give legitimate answers and get them published, which is why <laughs> philosophy is awesome. You, I still remember. Oh man. Back in one of my systematic theology classes, some kid started asking about aliens, and everybody was like, what are you doing? <laughs> but in a philosophy context, you can ask that and be That's taken right. very seriously, That's right. So, <laughs> which and, is awesome. And, and I will say, for the paper, Chad is not a believer uh, mm. in, in the, uh, the aliens there, but I, I'm, I'm kind of a committed believer in, in ETI. So. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll have to talk about that some other time. That that at least whetted your appetite, all of you guys. So you'll need to go get a copy of the paper. Uh, I think that one was in Phil Christie. Uh, yeah, so and you I'll, can I'll you can sure. get a, a version of it if you just go to my Phil Papers. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks, Tyler. This was awesome. And everybody who's been listening, thanks for tuning in to the Only Analytic Baptist and Confessional Podcast on the planet. And maybe other planets. Who knows? Well, I'll say that. I'll say that confidently on all potential planets as well. And thanks for tuning in.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.